Turn, if you would, to the seventh chapter of the book of Matthew. We are winding down the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember, last week we talked about the reason that we don't have the things that are described in the Sermon on the Mount is because we don't ask for them. We were told in last week's lesson, ask and it will be given. Knock, you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Seek and you will find. If, in fact, we really want the life as described in the Sermon on the Mount, we are told to ask God and God will provide it. Two weeks ago, if you remember, we talked about judging. And I made the comment that the verse is probably one of the most commonly quoted verses ever today because people everywhere say, don't judge me. And we talked about what judgment meant. Well, if that was probably one of the most commonly used verses in today's age, today's lesson has the verse that is probably traditionally, historically, more quoted than that. We pick it up in verse 12. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is traditionally known as what? The golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This sums up our ethical duty to fellow human beings. Whatever you would have them do Whatever they would want, you would want them to do to you, do also to them. We're going to spend some time talking about this. Then we're going to spend some time talking about some of the objections to this. It is curious, if you have not read them, there are people who don't like this verse. They don't like it at all. It is very condemning. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But before we do that, let's make sure we understand exactly what it is telling us to do. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. So if we're going to talk about the summary of the law and the prophets, maybe we should start with talking about the law. So, Exodus chapter 20. Quick, somebody tell me what's in Exodus chapter 20. The Ten Commandments. The first half of the Ten Commandments, traditionally we refer to referring to our relationship with God. The second half is our relationship with other human beings. And we start, say, in verse uh, 13 of chapter 20. You shall not murder. Okay? We're all agreed, right, that? We shall not murder. So if you don't want to be murdered... We're not going to have a show of hands on this one. (laughs) We're going to assume you don't want to be murdered. We're going to assume you don't want to be murdered. And if you don't want to be murdered, then why in the world would you go murder someone else? Well, once again, we're not asking for a show of hands. But I would assume that most of you have not murdered anyone. But we've been dealing with the Sermon on the Mount where he says, you've heard it said, don't murder, but I say to you, if you're angry at your brother, you've already committed murder in your heart. So let's talk about that one. 
I don't want you to be angry at me, so why should I be angry at you? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, this gets a little more personal real quick. Why? Because sometimes I want to get angry at you. You cut me off in traffic. You don't do what I want you to do. And I get mad. Don't I have a right to get mad? I was driving to work this week. We were on the highway going 10 miles an hour, racing along. I need to get over two lanes of traffic. There's a pickup truck pulling a trailer. Plenty of room in front of it. I pull in. We're going 10 miles an hour. He gets livid at me. I mean, he is yelling and screaming and using all kinds of wonderful gestures. And I hate to say this, I'm just laughing. We're going 10 miles an hour. And you're now one body length further away than you wanted to be. Why? Because that's the way we are. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If you don't want them getting angry at you, and I didn't want the guy to get angry at me. I mean, really. I don't want my co-workers, my family members, I don't want people to get angry with me. So, why would I think it's okay for me to get angry at them? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's interesting. We have heard the golden rule probably our entire lives. I can imagine that you, you as a child, you know, way back there in the 70s. <laughs> sorry. You as a child, your mother or father telling you, would you want somebody to do that to you? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We've heard this all of our lives to the point that sometimes we don't think about it. And there's the basic problem right there. We don't think about it. We just act. The person cuts me off in traffic and I'm ticked off and I have a right to be ticked off. I should have been right there. One more car length ahead. Going 10 miles an hour. But we wouldn't do that, right? I'm sitting waiting for a tow truck yesterday that I was told would be there in an hour. Two and a half hours later, the tow truck shows up. So he loads up my wife's car. I've got to go to the shop with him because they won't drop up a car at a shop that's closed. So I go to the shop to wait for him. I'm there for an hour and a half waiting for him. What is my response to this tow truck driver? The tow truck broke down. At least that's what they told me. I'm beginning to get a little steamed. It's getting dark. I'm in the wrong part of town. As I told my wife, I'm having great conversations with people. Just walking down the street. It's great. And I have to tell myself. I 
have to tell myself, because I've been studying this passage all week, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And when the tow truck driver drops off my car, and he is so apologetic, in fact, there's another worker with him because they had to fix his truck. And I shake his hand. I thank him, and I tell him, thanks for bringing my car. Does that mean I'm not mad? We're working at it. It is a work in progress. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not have sex with somebody that you're not married to. Why? Sounds like fun. What's the harm? We're all adults. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You want to have somebody having sex with your spouse? No. But you know what Jesus said? We're kind of stuck on this, aren't we? You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you've lusted after a woman, you have committed adultery in your heart. Oh, shoot. Do I want people lusting after my wife? Do I want people lusting after my daughters? No. Then why in the world would I think it's okay for me to don't do it? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Why do we not do this? Why, if this is so obvious, do we not do it? Because I'm special. The rules apply to you. I get to get what I want. You shall not steal. Do you want people taking your stuff? No. Then why would you think it's okay to take their stuff? You see how this works. Verse by verse, as we work our way through the law and the prophets, we begin to see, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, is the summary of the law and the prophets. <sighs> but why do people have trouble with this? The golden rule, in some form or fashion, is seen in cultures all around the world, all throughout history. We have Eastern societies. We have Islamic societies. We have all group, kinds of groups all teaching the principle don't do unto others what you don't want them to do to you. Or do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Why would people complain about this? Because there's a problem with it. Anybody know what that problem is? Well, it goes against their nature. We don't want to do it. But as a moral code, why do people have trouble with it? Well, it's simply this. Let's read this very carefully. What does it say? Hmm. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Whatever you wish people would do to you, do also unto them. Which implies that there is some type of universal moral code that if I want you to do or not do something to me, then that is exactly what I should do to you. But what if you want something else? 
What if you and I have different viewpoints about what good is? I remember talking, this was years ago, a young lady was tasked with providing food for her Sunday school retreat. Okay? So she was responsible for breakfast. So she went to the grocery store and she bought Fruit Loops. <laughs> I like Fruit Loops. Everybody must like Fruit Loops. Why would you want anything other than Fruit Loops? Because I have Fruit Loops. I like Fruit Loops, therefore everyone likes Fruit Loops. And that's the way people sometimes view this passage. I am projecting onto you the behavior that I think is right, and that's rather arrogant because it may not be what you think is right. There is a modern rendition of this, sometimes referred to as the platinum rule. Any of you ever heard of the platinum rule? No, I'm not making this up. (laughs) Do unto others as they would have done unto them. Okay? Do you see the difference in it? What is the problem? The problem is it is an acknowledgement of the idea that there are not universal values of what is right and wrong. What if I want to commit adultery? Who are you to tell me otherwise? By what universal moral standard can you tell me that I shouldn't do it if that's what I want to do? Consenting adults? No one gets harmed? No foul? Who are you to tell me not to do it? Hmm. Her comment is, God tells us not to do it. Yes. Yes. Is that what I called it? Yeah. Yeah. That's referred to as the platinum rule. How do we get around this? We get around it by acknowledging the fact that there is a universal moral code. You see, people look at the fact, remember I just said that A version of the golden rule is found in civilizations all over, and people go, ah, the Christians, they just stole it. They just stole it, and then they're trying to take credit for it. I read that just yesterday. If, in fact, Romans 1 is correct, and I believe that it is, if, in fact, Romans 1 is correct, and God has, in fact, written the moral code onto the human heart... And if, in fact, we have turned our back on that moral code, but the moral code is still there, it should not surprise us that around the world people believe, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It shouldn't surprise us. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man, which I've mentioned in here numerous times before. It's one of the few books that I actually read every year. It's very short. It's also one of the few books that I finished reading and immediately reread because I had no idea what it meant. (laughs) 
he refers to this moral code as the Tao, T-A-O, which is simply the way. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. The point of the book is that we, as moderns, are attempting to find a different way. And the moment we try that, we have to acknowledge the fact that somebody's just making it up. You either accept the fact that the moral code is written under the human heart and is given by God, or somebody's just making it up. Those are your two choices. And when I start changing the moral code that God has given us, I'm just making it up. What is the basis? Immanuel Kant looks at the golden rule and he says, well, it might be okay, but what's the basis of it? What is the foundation upon which we can build a moral code? And the answer is, there's not one apart from God. Wait a minute. Are you saying that unbelievers can't be good people? No, of course they can be good people. Why? The moral code is written on their hearts. They know that certain things are right and they know that certain things are wrong. Now, at certain points in time, I look at that moral code and I look at that woman over there and I go, well, for right now, I'm going after the woman. I'm going to ignore the moral code. But that doesn't mean the moral code doesn't exist. It just means I chose to do something different. I chose to say no to the moral code. As we read the scripture, we begin to understand what God requires of us. And as we begin to understand what God requires of us, we begin to understand, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, does that mean that it is easy? No, but it's easy most of the time. We're going to talk about easy in just a moment. What do I mean it's easy most of the time? Most of the time, I know what I would want somebody to do to me in a particular situation. There are ethically difficult situations. They are. I mean, we always use the old example. The Nazi comes to your door. He knocks on the door. He says, are you hiding Jews? And you've got a Jew in the basement. Are you going to lie to him? That's a moral dilemma. The answer is lie through your teeth, but we're not going to go there. Why? Because if you have not determined in your heart to tell the truth at all times, that's not a moral dilemma. I tell young people, if you're going to lie to your parents about anything and everything, then the Nazi coming to the door is not a moral dilemma. You're just used to lying. Just use what you're good at. Moral dilemmas are only moral dilemmas if we're committed to ethical behavior to begin with. Yes? Use the example of not coming to the door, but what about Rahab? I mean, wasn't that a 
Yes. Did Rahab lie about the position? These are the moral dilemmas. And everybody wants to talk about the moral dilemmas. And that's an interesting study. I've read them forever. But if we're not committed to doing unto others as you would have them do unto you, the moral dilemmas just go away because you're just giving in anyway. Do unto others. Yes, go ahead. There are all kinds of risk involved for you and for the others. Right. (laughs) It is a hard one. And we love talking about the hard ones. I mean, you've heard all these stories, right? You're studying ethics in high school. And we all know that high school students love to argue about things. I did when I was in high school. So, you know, you're in the life raft. There's ten of you in the life raft. You're running out of food. Who do you eat first? (laughs) You know, there's Mother Teresa over there, and there's the bum over here, and there's the industrialist, and there's this and this. And you have a long discussion about who do you eat first. We just love those kinds of arguments. But if we're not committed to the ethical standards of the Bible, then there are no moral dilemmas. There's just do whatever you want to do. That's why C.S. Lewis says you're either going to accept that there is a moral code written in the fabric of the universe or someone's making it up. And guess what? Today there are people who believe that the Bible is just made up by somebody. We do not believe that. I might add that it's not irrational to believe what we believe. If there is a God, if that God created the universe, if he created a moral universe, a universe in which there are right and wrong decisions, doesn't it make sense that he would communicate that to us? And that is what he has done in the scripture. So when we look at someone who is in need of something, we can look and say, what would I want done to me in this particular situation? It doesn't resolve all the difficulties, but it resolves most of them. Would I want you taking my stuff? No. Would I want you killing me? No. Would I want you being angry at me? No. Then why should I do that to other people? reading a book about an individual who was a drug addict. Question. What does the drug addict want? This is an easy question. He wants more drugs. But you, as the outsider looking at him, think, what would I want done to me in that particular situation? Would I want somebody to give me the drugs? Or would I want somebody to work at freeing me from the addiction to the drugs. What does the drug addict want? More drugs. 
What does the sex addict want? More sex. What does the person who fill in the blank? The scripture tells us, the scripture tells us what we ought to want in those situations. Now, do we do that perfectly? No. Why? Because we're sinners. Think about last week's lesson or two weeks ago's lesson. Don't judge others. Why do you worry about the speck in their eye when you have a two-by-four in your own eye? Sometimes we need somebody to tell us where the two-by-four is. Question. <laughs> do you want somebody to tell No, probably not. Do you need? Yes. Nothing in this moral code implies perfection on your part. There is no perfection on your part this side of eternity. But as we learn what God requires of us, as we study the scripture, we begin to understand what we ought to want and we begin to take our wants in line with what God would want and when we're dealing with other people, we can look at them and say, what would I want in this situation? And that's what we do for them. What would we have them do unto us? That's what we're going to do to them. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. The next couple of verses are very difficult for a lot of us to accept. Remember, we're working our way to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have the, actually the passage that we started this whole discussion with. The wise man hears these words and puts them into practice. The fool hears these words and doesn't put them into practice. When the storm of life comes, this one collapses, when the, this one collapses, and this one stands. I had to remember which hand was which. That's where we're headed. We're headed toward the conclusion that there are going to be lots of people who are going to hear the Sermon on the Mount. There are going to be lots of people who are exposed to the gospel message. There are going to be lots of people. Well, let's just go out and say it. Everyone in humanity has the law of God written on their heart. But as Romans chapter 1 tells us, they look at it and they go, nope, I'm going to go this way. So we ask the question, how many people are going to respond to the gospel? Man, I hope it's a bunch. I wish it was everyone. I wish everyone would hear the gospel and respond to it. And most of us have a handful of really wicked, evil people that we know are excluded, and that's a good thing. I mean, do you really want to get to heaven and have Adolf Hitler sitting there at the end of the picnic bench? Pol Pot, Genghis Khan, do you really want those? So we have this handful of people that we don't want there. But we want everybody else. I mean, aren't people basically good aren't we all trying to get to the some the same place aren't we all trying to find god in our own strange fashion 
wouldn't it be better if all the roads just led to the same place? That sounds so good. There's a problem with it. It's not true. Enter the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. How many people like this passage? Don't raise your hand. If you want to raise your hand, don't raise your hand. Christians sometimes are accused of enjoying the fact that we're in and they're out. We just relish the idea that I have the secret and you are going to hell in a handbasket. Let me let you in on a little secret. I don't know any Christians who believe that. I would love for everyone to get in, for everyone to respond to the gospel, for everyone to accept that Jesus Christ is the way of salvation. But the reality is there are people who are going to look at the cross and say no. There are people who are listening to this sermon as Jesus preaches it. Much less my horrible attempt at trying to explain it. There are people listening to Jesus himself and they're going to say no. We've talked about this from the very beginning. You know, I have this vision. Here's Jesus, here's his disciples, here's the crowd, and over at the edge are the Pharisees and the scribes and the who-knows-who trying to see what's going on. I mean, we've got to take care of these dangerous situations. They are not going to believe. Does that make me happy? No. But it is the reality of living in a moral universe where God gives you the ability to say no. We're talking about two paths here, two walkways through life. There's one that's easy to get into. It's easy to walk. It's nice. It's wide. It's a 10-lane highway with no traffic on it. You can just weave side to side. You know, you can stop and have your picnic lunch, and it is a breeze, and it just keeps on going until you get to the end. And at the end, there is destruction. There's another path. It's got this little gate that you have to wedge your way through. It's not easy to get through. It's a narrow path. It is a hard path. And at the end of that path, at the end of that path, 
is life everlasting. Those are the options that are set before us. And Jesus is telling the audience, pick one. You just get one choice. Pick it. Now, let's talk about this for just a moment. I mentioned a while ago this word, easy. The broad road is easy to go down. Wait a minute. Doesn't Jesus talk about his road being easy? I mean, where is that? Huh. Not that one. This one. Matthew chapter 11. We're going to get to this eventually. (laughs) Verse 28. Come to me, all who labor or are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Fabulous verse. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So here we have Jesus saying, come, because it's easy. And here we say there's a road that leads to destruction and it's easy. But the way of salvation is hard. What gives? Why why, Why does Jesus say one thing? Well, What is he talking about over in Matthew chapter 11? You're sitting there in your unsaved state. You are not a believer. You know you're not a believer. But you become convicted of the weight of sin in your life. If you remember in Pilgrim's Progress... Christian had this weight, this bag, this huge thing on his back, and it was just weighing him down, the guilt of his sin. Jesus looks at that person, and he says, you can't handle that guilt. You can't handle that weight. Let me put it aside, because my yoke, is easy compared to that. Come, find rest. You are burdened. So in Pilgrim's Progress, Christian goes through the narrow gate. He goes through the gate and the burden is removed from him. But here's the dilemma. Most of humanity is not burdened by their sin. They're just enjoying it. They don't feel that weight on their shoulders. They don't want God to remove that guilt from them. They don't want to accept that he is going to remove that burden. So in their ignorance, they're just having the time of their life. Now, you and I look at him and we go, we know where that's going. We know where that road leads. It's a 10-lane highway driving through the mountains. 
And we know that at mile marker 95, there is a thousand foot cliff. And if you keep going down that path, that's where you're going to head. It's an easy path. It's a broad way. Anybody can come in. I don't care what you believe. Just come on in. And that is the dominant philosophy, if not the dominant religion, of our world today. You believe whatever you want to believe. As long as you're sincere about it, who am I to tell you otherwise? But let's turn this thing around a little bit. You're driving down this 10-lane highway. You're driving at really good speeds. I mean, because it's fun. It is great. And at mile marker, what did I say? 95, there's a cliff. What would you want? Somebody who knew that there was a cliff at mile marker 95 to do to you. You'd want them standing in the middle of the road with red flags going, stop, stop. And you would race past them and go, ah, you sucker, as you go off the cliff. But it's easy. But there's another path. And that other path leads to life. There is a narrow gate. Here's an easy question. What is the gate? Jesus says in John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. Well, that sounds pretty narrow-minded, if, if you don't mind me saying so, right? Why, why should I think that you're the only way? I know lots of sincere people who believe a lot of different things. In fact, some of them are so sincere, they don't believe anything at all, but they do it sincerely. (laughs) My thought is this. Not that it's narrow as much as the fact that the grace of God provided any path at all to salvation. You see, you and I are convinced, we don't say this, well, we may say this out loud, I don't know, that we're all pretty good people. You know, I'm a pretty good person, my pagan friend next door is a pretty good person, those people who I live with are pretty good people, we're all pretty good people. God should just let us all in. But we don't fully appreciate the power of sin in our lives. At some point, each and every one of these pretty good people, you included, me included, looked at God and said, no, we're not going to do it. Whatever it is you want, I don't care who you are, you do not have the right to tell me what to do. To heck with you, I'm going to do it my way. 
At some point, you probably did that to your parents, and at some point, you did it to God. Well, let me let you in a little secret. God is the sovereign of the universe. He created it. By right of creation, he is the sovereign. You didn't just tell the guy next door, no. You said to the king of the universe, get out of my life. You are in rebellion toward him. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They listened to the tempter, they gave in to the temptation, and they sinned. And the judgment of sin is separation from God because God is a holy God. End of Bible, chapter 3 of Genesis. Just stop it right there. And God would have been just and righteous and holy and perfect. And we would all be going to hell in a handbasket. But God, who is rich in mercy, provided a way of salvation for you and me. And that provision is the person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Jesus came to provide a way for us to have life. Is it narrow? Or is it simply God's grace that he provides a path at all? This passage is wretched to the world that we live in today because it is viewed as very narrow-minded, very arrogant to think that we know what somebody else doesn't know. And we're all gleeful that we know it and they don't. There's no glee involved in this at all. Why? Because you know that if you are on this path, it is not because of anything you did, but because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Who are the poor in spirit? Those who know they cannot do it on their own. Blessed are those that mourn, those that know that they're sinners. It is interesting, if you remember in the Pilgrim's Progress, Christian goes to the gate, through the gate, the burden comes off. And he's walking on his path, and two other people join him. And he says, did you all go through the gate? I don't know. The gate's too narrow. We took the shortcut. We climbed over the fence. Their names were formalism, and hypocrisy. Formalism says, boy, do I look good on the outside. I have followed every rule that your pharisaical friend could invent. I am as good as they come. Hypocrisy says, I'm putting on my act. I've got my face on. I look as good of a Christian as you do. And then they get to the mountain called difficult. And the path goes right up the mountain. But there's two more paths. They kind of go around the mountain. Surely they all end up in the same place. So Christian goes up the mountain. Formalism goes one way. Hypocrisy goes the other way. And are never seen again. Because those paths end in destruction. 
Why is Jesus telling us this story? Well, first off, because it's true. It is true. He's getting to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and he's telling them, most of you are not going to follow this. You're just not going to do it. Why? Because it's hard. Why is it hard? Well, go back to the Beatitudes where we started all this. Just go to the last Beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Sometimes, sometimes, we sell Christianity as an easy piece of cake walk through life. Now, it is easy in that it removes the burden of the guilt of your sin that is weighing you down. That's a good thing. But that does not mean the path is going to be easy. Because, you know, there's all of those people on the 10-lane superhighway having the time of their life, and they look over at you trudging up this path, and they go, what idiots. Let's face it, that's what they believe. Broad is the road, broad is the gate, easy is the road, but the end of it is destruction. You can pick the path, but you can't pick the destination at the end of the path. I can go out here to I-30, and I can go east. Or I can go west. But having chosen to go east, I'm going to end up that direction. I'm going to go through Dallas. I'm going to go through Shreveport. I'm going to, wherever it goes out there, right? Or I can go west. I can choose which path. But I cannot choose the destination having chosen the path. What should this inspire us to do? Well, obviously, the first answer is to get on the right path. How do we get on the right path? If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, he will save us. That is the gospel message. The gospel message is there is a path that leads to life. And God has provided it for us. So our first response is to make sure we're on the right path. I might add, there's no place for pride on that path. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. God gives grace to the humble. There's no place for pride on that path. If you're prideful of the fact that you're coming to our church and that shows that you're somehow superior, you're just going down the 10-lane highway in a different fashion. There's no pride. There's no place for that. What's the second thing to do? Somebody needs to stand in the 10-lane highway and tell them the path leads to destruction. Are they going to like it? Probably not. Will some of them respond? Yes. What will cause them to respond? If you do it really, really well? No. What will cause them to respond is the Holy Spirit working in their lives. Well, why doesn't we just send the Holy Spirit over there? Well, he'll be there. 
But God told you to go stand in the path and wave them down. Tell them where that path is leading. Christian talks to formalism and hypocrisy, and he says, you're going the wrong way. It's no big deal. We'll go our own way. As we wind down the Sermon on the Mount, we have to ask ourselves, what are we going to do with it? But it sounds hard, yeah? But the end of it, the end of it is eternal life. What is the end of the other? Destruction. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you have provided a path of salvation. Thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I pray, Lord, that we would walk the narrow path and warn those who are headed for destruction. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.